The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. All right, so we're going to be looking this morning at the Lord's Prayer. Our series is called The Truth About, and last week was Class Participation Week, and you all did a great job. Um, We looked at a lot of the ways that we can, as families, keep Christ in Christmas, and I'm thankful for all the good ideas that I received um, for our family. Um, If you did not last week pick up the sheet, I know that that was there late, Um, and so if you want to grab this, this might be just a few ideas that you can use as a family um, for the rest of this Christmas season, and then maybe next, that will help you just um, keep Christ the center of the Christmas season. Certainly, we say we want to do that we need to actually do something to make sure that happens. So we've gone through a number of different topics in the series. Some have been controversial. Some have been um, kind of very difficult to wade through. And I got to say, as I've gone through the series, I've felt a number of different emotions going through it. Um, Generally, I love that we can go to the Word of God and just have confidence in what the Bible says and that I don't need to be super smart in order to live as a Christian in this world. I just need to trust God's Word. Um, Oftentimes, I was a little bit worried about the response I'd receive from a few people, um, but you guys have been great, and I'm thankful for that. Um, sometimes I felt, as we've gone through these different difficult topics, that I was an inadequate to the task. Um, but I've always felt thankful that the Holy Spirit is with us and guiding us and, and, and helping us to illuminate the Word of God to our minds and to our spirits. Um, I'm always grateful for the opportunity, but I've never been so excited about one of our lessons as I am about this one. And it's the truth about the Lord's Prayer. It's something that's not going to be controversial, but I think it's something that's, that's extremely practical and applicable in our lives and something we maybe don't take very much time to think about. And so this may be the most useful topic that we've looked at so far. Um, we are currently going through a series on Wednesday night with our teens called Walking with God. And our Wednesday night Bible studies have often been centered around kind of apologetics and let's, let's learn to defend our faith and let's get some truth into these kids so that hopefully when they go off to school or college or whatever, that they're strong in their faith. But this year, what we tried, decided to do is we're just going to focus on their walk with God. Let's, let's focus on um, their walking with God by reading His Word, walking with God um, through prayer, walking with God, just every day relying on Him. And one of the first topics we got to was prayer, and we've been spending um, a week on each line of the Lord's Prayer, and it's been one of my favorite times with the teens going through this study. There are many strange ideas about how prayer is supposed to work. There's a lot of people that just, they don't seem to really get it, right? I was reading this week something from the Roman Catholic Church that kind of just set out this guidance on prayer. And it said, As the prayers themselves witness, the church teaches us that we should pray not only directly to God, but also to those who are close to God, those who have the power to intercede upon our behalf. Indeed, we pray to the angels to help and to watch over us. We pray to the saints in heaven to ask their intercession and assistance. We pray to the Blessed Mother to enlist her aid, to ask her, to beg her son to hear our prayers. And that's unfortunate primarily because it misses the fact that Christ 
went to the cross because he loved us so much. And now because of what he's done for us, because he's made us right with him, we have access to the throne of God ourselves by his blood. That because of what Christ did, now we can go directly to God's throne. This is unique to mankind. This is unique to the history of mankind. Even prior to um, Christ coming, they had you know a, a one priest go in once a year to the Holy of Holies to, to offer sacrifice. Basically one time going directly to the throne of God on behalf of a nation. And now as individuals, every day we can go to God's throne. We don't need to go through other people. We don't need to beg the Blessed Mother to, to have her son hear our prayers. God is asking and calling us to pray to Him. And so I think it's important to recognize the importance of prayer and the privilege that prayer is. But what I want to do this morning is give a little bit of direction to those prayers. Um, If a new Christian were to say something like, how do I pray? I can see a Christian who's more mature in the faith say something like, well, you just talk to God. Right? Just a conversation with God. And so they go on and say, well, exactly what do I say? What do I talk about? Well, you, you tell Him how you feel what your needs are. You pray for others. You pray for whatever you think the world needs. Maybe pray for world peace or something. Um, but you, you just talk to God about kind of what's going on in your life. And so the, the person, now there's some, nothing wrong with saying directly those things, but the new believer goes away thinking, okay, well, I go to God and, and my time with God is spent telling God how I feel and what I need, what, I, what other people need. That all of my interaction with God is centered around myself, my life, what's going on with me. And when we look at the Lord's Prayer, that's not where it starts. That's not the bulk of the time that's spent in prayer. And so I hope that by looking at the Lord's Prayer more closely, we'll recognize more what our prayers ought to look like. Believe it or not, Jesus did teach us how to pray. It's not something you just get to do however you want to do. He gave us a model. It's a prayer often called the Our Father or the Lord's Prayer. Um, Probably the best name for it would have been the Disciples' Prayer, but I'm not advocating we change it at this point because I don't think we can. But this is not actually the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer was in John chapter 17 when he prayed for his disciples. This is the prayer that he taught his disciples to pray because Jesus actually couldn't pray this prayer because he couldn't ask for forgiveness of sin. So this is the Disciples' Prayer, but we'll just call it the Lord's Prayer. Um, There is two ironies about this. Um, the first irony about the Lord's Prayer is that before that the Lord's Prayer is most often said in a way that is a what you might consider a vain repetition or just a repetition, and some people would say, yeah, it's definitely a vain repetition, where it's just said without thinking, you say the words, and that is somehow beneficial to you. The second thing that happens with the Lord's Prayer is that because we don't want to repeat it vainly, we just don't talk about it at all. We never use it. And so the model prayer seems to be used most often in one of two ways. Either it's used to set aside and not used, or it's used to repeat vainly, which kind of goes against what Jesus was saying the two verses prior to the Lord's Prayer. So, how do we actually use it? This morning I want to look at the history of the Lord's Prayer, the purpose of the Lord's Prayer, the meaning of the Lord's Prayer, and then the praying of the Lord's Prayer. So the history of the Lord's Prayer, um, Christ gave the Lord's Prayer It seems like when you read through the Gospels that it was given at two different occasions. It was given in Matthew chapter 6 at the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus was teaching through the Sermon on the Mount, probably the greatest sermon that Jesus gave while he was here on earth. And mid-sermon, he's looking at the hypocrisy of some of the religious people. 
And their hypocrisy, first of all, in giving, how they're, they're pretending like they're so kind, they're such nice people, but it's all a show before people. And that directs his attention toward praying. People do the same thing when they pray. You know, they say a prayer, but the goal of the prayer is not to speak to the God of heaven. The goal of the prayer is to impress everybody around them. And you have absolutely heard people pray like that in churches, right? They pray, and the prayer is frilly and, and pretty sounding, and you can almost hear the beauty of it tingling off the church ceiling. Because it's not going to God, but it sounds really nice, right? So he gave the Lord's Prayer to combat those two problems. He gave it also in Luke chapter 11, and this is when the disciples came to him asking him to teach us to pray. And it's interesting that the reason they came to him, this is just, just after um, Jesus has been teaching in Mary and Martha's house, they, they find Jesus by himself praying. And what I'm guessing happened, I don't know this for sure, but I'm guessing that they watched him pray for a while and they were like, wow, Lord, teach us to pray. Like, we've prayed before, but we've never prayed like that. And so, Lord, teach us to pray. And he gives kind of a shorter version of the Lord's Prayer there in Luke chapter 11. The church has been using this prayer since its inception. Um, early on, it was translated into Latin, and it was said primarily in Latin for about 1,500 years or so, even though for a vast majority of that time, most people didn't speak Latin. And so they would say the Lord's Prayer and repeat the words. And if you don't think that the Lord's Prayer is used as vain repetition, I don't know what it is when you're saying words you don't know what they mean. But that it was used primarily in Latin until about the 16th century, the Protestant Reformation, and that's when it was translated um, well into English. Actually, Tyndale is the one that translated the version of the prayer that is now most often said by English-speaking people. So that's he's the one that used the word trespasses. The King James uses the word debts. And so the, the Tyndale is the one that's responsible for the, the version that the Roman Catholic Church recites on a regular basis. Spencer and Lannan go to a school, uh, a Roman Catholic school, and they say the Lord's Prayer every morning. So it's, it's spoken very often in Roman Catholic churches and, and schools. I just had one interesting thing I learned about the Lord's Prayer this week. Uh, I listened to a guy talk about the Jesus Seminar, mm-hmm. and what they did, they went through the gospel about it. Everybody's familiar. Mm-hmm. They were supposed to be higher criticism, and they took out all of the stuff that, where they identified what Jesus <coughs> would have actually said. Mm-hmm. They the things that they thought were just put in there by other people, whatever. And so they're wrong with the criteria for all that. At the end of the day, what they came away with from the Lord's Prayer was Jesus actually said, Our Father. <laughs> it was all addition and. How uh, they walked out of there, confident that they did a good job. I don't know. Oh, yeah. That's crazy too, because the, uh, my understanding of the, the Jesus seminar is they basically went to the gospel and they took everything that was supernatural out of it. And so, what could Jesus have actually said and done? Well, a bunch of criteria. Yeah, it, it was based on well, Jews would only do this, and these things are supernatural, so they couldn't have happened. And so they they kind of parsed the gospels. But to, to take so much out of the Lord's prayer seems really strange. Why is that needed? Well, because if anything was supernatural and anything like was attached to it or defended, it had to go too. Ah. So it just ended up just spreading like a wind mm-hmm. through. Wow. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> All right. So what is the purpose of the Lord's Prayer? How did Jesus intend it to be used? Well, the first thing to realize is that 
the purpose that Jesus gave the Lord's Prayer was actually to correct vain prayer practices. So if you think that it doesn't really matter how you pray as long as you pray, you're wrong because Jesus actually gave the Lord's Prayer to say, this is not how to do it. I'm going to correct that by showing you what you ought to do. But it was given to correct vain prayer practices. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 8, Jesus said, When thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which sees in secret shall reward thee openly. But when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knows what things you have need of before you ask Him. Two problems that he points out very clearly in this passage. First, he said, don't pray like those who pray for self-praise. That they pray for the, the praise of men. That their goal in their prayer is to be impressive. Don't pray like those guys. And number two, don't pray like th- those who call the heathen. Now, part of this is because when the heathen people around them, those who worship false gods, would pray, oftentimes what they would do is they would, they would just pray the same words over and over and over and over and over again until they got what they want. They thought by doing that, that would make their gods happy. So what Jesus is doing is he's looking at the religious group and he says, don't do it, the religious group as in the, the Jewish people, and he says, don't do it like these people who are doing it just to be seen of men. And don't do it like the Gentile people who are doing it just in, in a way that is vain repetition, where they think just by what they're doing, just by the sacrifice of doing it, that's enough to have their gods answer them. It's not that way. So what do you do? Well, the purpose of the Lord's Prayer then is, first of all, to correct the vain prayer practices, but second, to be used as a model for the disciples. It's a, it's a model for the disciples. In both circumstances, Jesus is not praying how he prays. He is teaching his followers how they ought to pray. He says, after this manner, in this way, pray like this. He does not say, pray these words. Repeat after me. It's important to to see that, that slight difference. It's a model. It's not a repeat after me. This model prayer has a number of aspects to it, and I believe that it's Jesus' intention here to teach us the things that we ought to be praying about when we pray. It's not about repeating the words, but it is about mimicking the intentions of the words with our own. So we're supposed to get to, okay, what exactly was Jesus saying that we should say to God at this point? When, when he says each of these phrases, what's the meaning held in those words? Because the words themselves, they don't have any magical significance. But the meaning, we need to get to the meaning so that we can pray that same meaning for ourselves. I think finally that the order of the prayer is significant. I think as you go through the prayer, you see Jesus kind of taking you on a journey where at the end of the journey, 
Um, everything for you is going to line up how it should. I really think that in a, in a terrible, difficult circumstance, when your world is spiraling out of control, if you could pray this prayer as it's written, if you could pray this prayer and mean the words that are saying, it would be of incredible benefit to you. And so hopefully you'll see that as we go. What, what is the number three, the meaning of the Lord's Prayer? Jesus says, After this manner, therefore pray, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. This is how we address God. This is how we are to properly relate to God. If I started relating to Pastor Dressler in in the same way that I relate to my wife, it would be really weird. Yeah. Right? If, if I treated my kids the same way that I treat the police officer, you know, just yes or no, it'd be weird, right? We, we recognize that in every single one of our relationships, we have a unique way of relating to that person based on what the relationship is. And so Jesus begins here by teaching us how we're supposed to relate to God. How do we relate to God? Well, he begins and he says, our. And that's an understanding that God is both personal, he's ours, right? There's ownership almost. I mean, obviously, certainly we don't own God, but, it, but he is our God, okay? He's not just a God or the God out there, but there's some, something personal about this. But also the word our is corporate, so it's not my God. Now, there's nothing wrong with saying my God, but recognizing here the way Jesus presents it is that this is, we're his children, right? But we're not just his only child. Right? We're, we're part of a body. We're part of a, a larger group of people. So we can almost pray this prayer together, our Father, right? And that's part of what makes this, this really neat, that God has given us a prayer that recognizes the body of Christ as part of our relationship with him. He goes on and he says, Father. And this is really, I think, helpful for some people to recognize how they relate to God. And for others, maybe it, it makes it a little bit difficult. Um, if you've had a father who was somewhat of what a father should be, um, a father who is loving you and, and seeking to protect you and to guide you and to help you and to, to be right by you, um, to lead you. If, if you had a father like that, then when you say father, things come to your mind like, oh, that means God is my protector. He's my provider. He's the one who watches over me and cares for me and loves me and wants what's best for me and is leading me and guiding me. And so those are all really helpful things. But some people have had a father who, who didn't do those things, right? Some people have had a derelict father, a negligent father. And so when they, they hear the word father, um, what those people have to do really, what you'd have to do in that situation is just think about what a father is supposed to be. Because God is not the derelict, negligent father. God is the father who never fails his children. God is the perfect father. So he says, our father. We, when we come to God, we first of all recognize that there is this intimacy, this closeness, this relationship that we have with God. That he's not just some God who is so far off and we need to like um, prostrate ourselves before and, and never look up to. Now, should we prostrate ourselves before God? Yes, absolutely. But recognizing that, that he begins here with this Abba Father, this idea that God, I, I know that they, they say the word daddy, and that's, that's kind of like a, a weird way of saying it. But the word Abba would have been the most personal way of saying Father for him. And so Abba Father, he goes on and he says, 
which art in heaven. And so it's, it's almost this, you got to recognize that Jesus is, that God is yours and he's close to you and he's here and he's your father and he's the God of the, of the universe. He's the one who lives in heaven. In Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1, Isaiah says, Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you build unto me and where is the place of my rest? Basically saying, I am an awesome God. Okay, the earth is my footstool. I, I inhabit eternity. I inhabit the universe. I mean, you can't, how can you build a house that I'm going to live in? How crazy is that thought? How, how could a God like me come down to a per- people like you? What a crazy thought. And then he goes on and he says, for all those things has my hand made and all those things have been, saith the Lord, but to this man will I look even to him that is of a poor and of a contrite spirit and trembles at my word. And so, again, this idea that God is awesome and amazing and omniscient, omnipotent. He's just way, way beyond our comprehension. And yet, he comes to those who are contrite and humble and willing to obey his word. Right? It's the same idea with our Father which art in heaven. He goes on and he says, Hallowed be thy name. Your name is holy. Your name transcends us. Your name is sacred. Your name is not like us, right? It's separate from us. Um, This is the God who is perfectly holy and perfectly just, perfectly righteous. Um, We should understand what we're talking about when we speak to God, when we're talking about God. He is the most wonderful and the most fright, frightening reality that we could ever imagine. He, he's greater than we could ever imagine. And so we don't come to God as this homeboy, this you know best bud. Um, we come to God as, yes, a father who loves us and cares for us, but recognizing that he is all-powerful, that he is the one who created and sustains the universe, that he is greater than our, our greatest imagination of him, and that he's holy and separate and transcendent. That's how we come to God. Verse number 10 says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The idea of a kingdom is a rule, a reign, a dominion, or an authority. And so the the prayer here is, Lord, I want your kingdom to come. I want your rule. I want your reign. I want your authority. I want your dominion. Now, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, the exact same way that he reigns in heaven with his angels is the way that we're praying that he reigns on earth. And I think this is a prayer that we can say very quickly sometimes and not recognize its implications for us. Can you really pray, God, God, I want your will done on earth as it is in heaven when you don't really want your will, God's will done in your own life? Can you really say, God, I want your will here when you're like, yeah, but my will in my realm. I still want my authority. I still want my dominion and my reign. You can't pray for kingdom when you're so caught up in yours, his kingdom, right? And so it's yours or his. It's your authority or his authority. And so we say those words and I hope we understand what they mean for us. Lord, your kingdom comes. Certainly that means we want God's rule and reign and authority here on earth. 
And maybe there is some type of eschatological sense to it where we're praying for the time when God will reign fully here on earth. We're calling that time forward. But I think there's also a real sense that it means, God, I want your will. Your will is best. I'm going through suffering. I'm going through difficulty. But I still know your will is best. I want to do what's right in your eyes. Thy kingdom come on earth as in heaven. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. I think this part of the prayer makes more sense to those who are wondering where their next meal is going to come from. That's a pretty good amount of people in this world. But I also don't believe that when Jesus said this part of the prayer, he was only saying something that was relevant to those who are looking for their next meal. Surely Jesus' model prayer is not only for those who are in extreme poverty. So I think there's two ways we can understand what's going on here, or two things that can help us in this, give us this day our daily bread. First of all, I think it's helpful to know that when it says the word daily bread, it's speaking of our, our everyday necessities. Lord, give us this day those things that we need to sustain our lives. We should recognize, first of all, that Our daily bread is provided to us by God. And so even in praying, God, um, give me this day what I need to live, you might say, you know what, if I don't pray that prayer, I have my house, I have my fridge full, I have my car, I have everything that I need. That's great. And so you can go ahead and not pray that prayer. But what you're doing is you're choosing not to recognize still where all those things came from. And I think when we do that, when we pray and we say, Lord, give me what I need today, recognizing that what you gave me yesterday to live was also from you. What, recognizing that what you will give me, even, even though it's already in my fridge, what you will give me is something that was provided by you. There's, there's some part of us that needs to constantly be thankful for what we have, because if we're not thankful, we become greedy very quickly. Right? We take everything we have for granted. And so this is a, a way of Jesus speaking to our lives and saying, recognize that what you have is from him. Don't take it for granted. Learn to rely on God for your daily needs. And I think as we learn to rely on God and recognize that, that our physical needs are being met by God, we also recognize that, Lord, I need, I need my daily spiritual meal. Lord, give me what I need spiritually. Give me what I need emotionally. Lord, uh, sustain me today in every way. Dan, the parable of the, the rich fool yep. uh, illustrates that. The rich fool you know, had plenty and built, tore down his old barns, built new yep. barns, and then Yep. The Lord said, your soul is required of you tonight. Yep. He didn't prepare for anything spiritual. Yep. He just was satisfied what he could do and not what God provided. Yep. He was doing everything that made sense in his own life with, that, with keeping God out of the equation. Yeah, absolutely. Give us this day our daily bread. He moves on to verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Um, and this is probably the most shocking part of the prayer for us. This is the part that I, I think we ought to wrestle with the most because it's not, Lord, forgive us our debts as we should forgive our debtors as, or as we try to forgive our debtors. It's, Lord, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Give us, forgive us our sins as we forgive others in the same way that we forgive others. What a crazy thing to say because we know we don't do that very well. What's also interesting about this is Matthew chapter 12, or chapter 6, verse 12, he says this is part of the prayer, and as soon as he concludes the prayer, he goes back to this thought. 
in Matthew chapter 6, verse 14, he says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And then he's given later on an entire parable that helps us to understand how this works of the, the benevolent king who forgives his servant of a, of, a, of a massive debt that he could never pay back, billions of dollars that he owed. And then that servant goes out and he cannot forgive a few thousand dollars to a fellow servant. That's a, the picture of us not forgiving others. And I think what this part of the prayer does for us is it helps us to understand how um, our our orientation toward God should be that we are great so grateful for what he's done for us that we are already going out and forgiving other people that we're recognizing that his sacrifice is forgiveness for us even though forgiveness is hard toward other people I'm not saying it's easy it's, it's incredibly hard it's one of the hardest things that we are called to do as as human beings um, but his sacrifice for us and his forgiveness of us is so great that it means we need to do this we need to forgive others. There's so many benefits in forgiving someone. It frees you from the past. It gives you control. And you're not chained to that post, to that person any longer. So the Lord is so correct in forgiveness. It, it benefits us more than, I think, the person that we forgive. Oh, absolutely. Yep. Yep. Obedience often does that. Forgiven people must be willing to forgive. Now, you might ask, okay, well, does that mean that if... I don't forgive someone, then I just got unsaved. You know, Jesus. Well, I think it's important for us to recognize too that that what he's saying here is in the context of of what all of the Bible says and what the gospel is, and we do recognize that there is a difference between our standing before God and our relationship with God, right? And so you have this standing before God that when you trusted Christ as your Savior, you received His righteousness. Um, your sins were taken away. When you stand before God at Judgment Day, you will be wearing white garments. You will be clean. Okay, You've been washed. But we also recognize that there is a difference in our relationship that, with God that is impacted all the time with our own sin. And I think part of what's happening here is we need to recognize that our unwillingness to forgive others. If I don't forgive Maria because she said something mean to me, okay, and she probably has. <laughs> If I don't forgive Maria, then what that's saying is, God, I'm not, I'm not believing that your forgiveness of me is so great that it needs to change my life. So when I don't do that, though I'm just, though it's Maria is the one that, that did something wrong, it's impacting my relationship with God. Right? And so if we want to have a right relationship with God, we need to be able to pray the Lord's Prayer. And if we can't pray, Lord, forgive me, as I forgive others, then we're not right with God. That relationship part is struggling. We see that all the time in our relationship with other people, right? You can have somebody who's your child, and they're your child all the time, but your relationship changes. It doesn't mean their standing changes, but the relationship changes. Verse number 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This prayer can only be prayed by those who are serious about putting their flesh to death who are serious about avoiding sin, right? Don't go to God and say, Lord, lead me not in temptation when you, full, you know full well that your desire is to walk straight into that temptation. Deliver me from evil when you love that evil and you want that evil and you have no desire to be delivered from that evil. But if we can pray this prayer for real and, and, 
And it's not begging this fickle God to say, Lord, don't just, don't just put this temptation in front of me that's going to be impossible for me to, to stand against. That's, that's not what we're doing. We're asking God to lead us in a better path. God, don't lead me in that way or help me to follow you in the right way, in the right path. Um, deliver me from evil. In James chapter 1, verse 13, James writes, Let no man say when he is tempted that I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempts he any man. So God is not going to purposefully put this awful, wicked temptation in front of you that you can't stand against. That's not the idea here. The idea here is, Lord, help me to do right. Um, deliver me from evil. And, and we, we could be speaking about all kinds of evil, all kinds of trouble here, but I think just the way it's paired with the previous statement, he's talking about deliver me from um, the, the evil that my flesh desires, that Satan will bring before me. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 41, and in a number of other places in Scripture, Jesus says, Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. We've all had an experience where we thought, this is wrong, this is bad, I need to stop doing this. Don't want to do this thing anymore. And we've been very serious about it. And I can guarantee that we've all thought that about a certain sin that we later on engaged in once again. And so the question is, why do we do it? Why is it that we go back to the sin that we've already decided we hate and we don't want to do? And I think part of the problem here is that we keep relying on our own strength. We keep, like the disciples, saying, no, I'm just going to keep my eyes open. I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to stand And Jesus, if you think that, you don't recognize that your flesh is weak, that you can't do it on your own. And so it is significant that in the Lord's Prayer, He takes time to say, you want to know how to battle sin in your life? Ask for help. Okay, Ask God to empower you and to help you to overcome those things. Verse number 14. Is it verse 14? No, it's verse 13, second half. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. He, be, he ends with a, a doxology of praise. Lord, you are the ruler. You are the greatest. You are glorious. You are awesome. Concluding our prayers in a way that recognizes the greatness of God will help us to get up from those prayers and then live well. Right? If we can end with glory to God. Um, I did have that part about praying Lord's Prayer um, uh, the, the main points are just, we pray it as a model and not as a replication. Um, we pray it to change our heart and attitude, and we pray to move the hand of God. I think the only thing I want to say that's significant there is when you actually get into the Lord's Prayer and you start trying to pray the Lord's Prayer, what you will find is that as much as you're praying for God's help, you are also praying in a way that, that must change you. You can't pray the Lord's Prayer. You can't say, Lord, I want your will. Lord, help me to forgive as I forgive. Lord, deliver me from evil. You can't pray those things unless you're serious about trying to live a a life that's glorifying to God. And so I think this is a fantastic model prayer because it has everything in it. It begins with God. It focuses on God. In fact, the first half of the prayer is all about God. God, you are glorious. You're our Father. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. It's all about God. And then it ends with God. Right? Thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. And so we should understand that, that a lot of what's supposed to happen when we get down on our knees to pray is that it's supposed to change us. 
Certainly it moves the hand of God, but it, it changes us. And so why don't we just pray um, to conclude this, this morning. Father, we thank you um, that we can call you Father, that you are um, our God, that um, you love us as a father ought to love, um, that you protect us and provide for us and you guide us and you lead us, that you've sent your son to die for us. We thank you that you're a glorious God, um, that you are the creator of the heavens and the earth, that you are all-powerful and all-knowing, that there is nothing like you. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to live a life that is in line with your will and your desire, with what you revealed in your word. Lord, we pray that we would see in our church, um, a church family that desires to just live the way that that our God is, um, holy as you are. Um, Help us to live for your glory. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to recognize our need to forgive. Uh, Lord, I know that it's something we all struggle with, um, but Lord, we know that what you've done for us is so amazing, so great, um, that you sent your only son to die for for sinful people, uh, Lord, that we were your enemies, and that's when he died for us. And Lord, help us to forgive those who, who sin small in comparison toward us. Lord, I thank you for what you, how you provide for us every day. Thank you for taking care of our needs, Lord. So many things we never think about and we never um, remember to, to thank you for. And Lord, I pray you'd continue to help us and, and give us what we need to live. Lord, we thank you that you are just uh, an amazing God, that you are magnificent, that you're beyond our comprehension, that there's nothing that we can um, do to give you the praise that you deserve. There's no words that can, we can say. Lord, I just pray that you'd help us to live lives that are, as best as we can, worthy of your holy name. Uh, Lord, help us to, to run from temptation and to avoid evil, Lord, to stand against it. We thank you, Lord, um, for this wonderful prayer that you've given us. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.